iTunes U at Kennesaw State University. My presentation is going to be a, a little less formal and a little bit informal. Um, I am a first year PhD student at Emory University and I, um, before starting school there, I did a Fulbright um, in Peru, in Lima, um, between 2010 and 2011. This picture is a little bit misleading because I didn't spend the year in Machu Picchu. I spent it in, a, in one of the poorest parts of Lima. But it's a pretty picture, so. Um, all right, so I don't need to talk about that. All right. Um, while I was in Peru, I visited lots of different places, including Ayacucho, Arequipa, Cusco, Puno, Paracas, Trujillo, Chiclayo, Chachapoyas, Suyana, Tumbes, and Lima. But like I said, most of my time um, was spent in Lima. Um, so today I want to talk about, so I'm taking a, a very broad view of what culture means. <laughs> um, so I'm talking about um, poverty and different ways that um, female migrants from different parts of Peru, so a lot of the women were from these places, um, how they cope with their situation of poverty. And in that um, process, I am going to talk about uh, a women's cooperative that we were able to start um, using a very bottom-up approach, a community organizing approach to um, development. And so I, I've also brought some things here that are on display um, and yeah, to look at. Um, but it should come into being uh, with the, OK. so. The first thing I'm going to talk about are informal coping mechanisms of female migrants to Lima living in the slums, um, followed by talking about the cooperative. And I think I'll just have time for those two things, um, so I won't really talk about that very much. OK. So what do I mean by informal coping mechanisms? Um, it sounds kind of technical. But basically, the main idea is that individuals have coping mechanisms or resiliency themselves but without outside, outside institutions or without the government or without NGO assistance in order to deal with a lot of the problems that they face um, that are brought on by poverty. So here I said a lot of outside institutions, NGOs and the government will try to help poor people but they often don't take into consideration how poor people help themselves. And so what I've identified here um, are four different ways that I noticed in my year there um, of which there's absolutely no outside help, and people have developed their systems and networks and individual resiliency in order to deal with a lot of the problems associated with being poor, essentially. Um, is there anybody that, that's Peruvian in the audience? Okay, so, great. So, I, I, it will be great to be, for it to be participatory, so if you've, if you've heard of um, a lot of these things, it would be great to get your input as well. Um, so. Okay, so the first point is on the acquisition of land. So, so Lima, and this is very specific to Lima um, and Peru, but Lima and, I mean, Peru, and you don't really see this type of history in terms of land acquisition in, in a lot of other countries in South America. And Hernando de Soto talks a lot about this process in, in his books, um, but basically what happened in the 1960s and 1970s is that a lot of migrants came from all parts of Peru, and they just they they were incredibly well organized, and would form groups of twenty to thirty to hundreds of people, and essentially just settle on private or public land that was not being used at the time. 
And so what happened over time is that there, there was a lot of clashes with authority, but eventually the courts kind of favored the settlers as opposed to the private landowners or public, or if it was on public land. And so you've, you see the onset of hundreds and hundreds of local, like very well-organized communities in different parts of the outskirts of Lima. Um, let's see, so, so this is what a typical assentamiento humano may look like. So I said that this process began in the 1960s and 1970s. It's ongoing today, so you'll see different levels of development in terms of the communities themselves. So each of these communities have a leadership structure, so you have somebody that's in charge of the community. They pay taxes, essentially, to the community. And this is outside of the realm of the government, outside of the realm of a church, outside the realm of an NGO. So this happens intrinsically. Um, so this, this particular place where I worked uh, in for the year that I was there is called Virgen de la Candelaria in Via Maria, if you know Lima. Um, and it uh, was about 12 years old now. So you can see kind of, so this is a, a bird's eye view of Via Maria, well, one part of it at least. Um, there are about a million people that live in just that part alone. So this is kind of a more developed part. You can see that the houses are bricks as opposed to the roofs. So, um, okay. So where are the asentamientos humanos in Lima? Um, there. So most of the area that's in the black are all, they all look like that, essentially, different at different stages of development. Um, so, let's see, what do I have after this? Okay, so one thing, a few things I wanted to mention in addition to that. So, so the process is kind of reverse. So here in America, you usually have land that's zoned off for neighborhoods, and then you'll go in and you'll buy um, a piece of property, and you'll buy a house, and then all of your amenities are, are already there. So you already have plumbing and electricity and all, this, all of these things. So the process is reverse in these communities. So what will happen is they'll literally overnight settle, and then in, in every, and it's very well organized. So the leaders of the, the groups will essentially have blocked out parcels of land for each person, or each family, and then overnight they will go up and set up a straw hat. Right now, actually, you can see that process happening even the, like, in parts of Lima that are no longer Lima, but even on the outskirts. So as you're leaving Lima on a bus, for example, in the nor going north or south, you'll see this happening in parts of Lima. There's, there's absolutely nothing there, really. So then what happens is they will work together and organize, self-organize, in order to get things like electricity and plumbing and schools and other public goods, essentially. So in the community that I worked in, so I said that it was 12 years old. It took them seven, well, so only four years ago, they were able to get electricity and land deeds. So it took them you know, seven years for that process to happen. And they still don't have running water, um, nor a public school that's close by. So it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a very strong model of organizing, but it takes a very long, time to get your basic services. Um, okay, so the interesting thing that I also noticed is, so as time, go, this is echoing, um, so as communities develop, the less unity um, takes place. So for example, you're really organized in the beginning because it's, it's a 
survival, essentially. But as you get more things, as you get electricity, as you get water, the organizing becomes less strong. Um, and so one of, when I did a, when we did a community-based needs assessment, one of the biggest problems that the women identified were the, was the fact that there was a lack of unity. And that's what they wanted to work on. Which is really interesting because that, they identified that over things like not having access to water or a school. See, so they wanted to, they wanted to be united more. The English translation is a little weird, but okay. So, um, all right, the next coping mechanism I want to talk about are polladas. So I think people that are Peruvian will know what this is also a very Peruvian thing as opposed to something that's more generalizable in South America. Um, let me just see what, okay. So basically <laughs> what happens here is if you have some kind of a personal crisis or say you have a health problem, you, don't, you can't pay a hospital bill, you're trying, or so that's more of an emergency, or if you are trying to uh, build a, your, the roof on your house, or if you're trying to um, raise some money for a cooperative or whatever. So what, what will happen is a group of women, mostly, will, or, or if you're a taxi cab driver and your, your car breaks down, these are all scenarios. <laughs> there's literally a poyata every week that I went to while I was there. So <laughs> there's lots of scenarios for which this happens. But um, a group, the persons, so all of the social the people in their social network, so extended family, family, neighbors, will get together and buy tickets. Um, and that person and their friends and family will cook chicken, most of the time barbecue chicken, um, to sell. And then you have a big party at the end, at, at, at the end of the night, which looks something like that. Um, that's a yunsa, a yunsa, which is a little bit different, but it was also a fundraiser of some sort. So I was the best picture I had. Then they'll be dancing and lots of beer and lots of fun. But it is, it, it sounds like kind of like, oh yeah, that, that sounds like a fundraiser, nothing more, but it's really not. It's integral to the culture in a lot of ways. Um, so in the community that I worked in, every time they had a poyada, they would make something like between 200 to $600. And that covered the expenses. So, for example, one of the women had one because she couldn't afford the medication for her daughter who had anemia. And so she was able to raise $300 to be able to buy the medicine for the entire year, for well, probably six months, for her daughter. Um, so, um, yeah, and so the other interest, there's a lot of informal rules that also happen. So in this particular community, so I didn't mention, um, there's about 250 families that lived in this community that I worked in, and I worked with about 30 of the women. But uh, there's an informal tacit understanding that if somebody is good, if you, two people are wanting to host a poyata the same weekend, the person who is in most need will get priority. So it just happens organically, um, which I thought was a really cool process, an informal process that that's something to consider when, <laughs> you know, the, there are these kinds of structures already, informal processes that are going on um, without outside intervention. So, okay. Um, the, th the third uh, coping me mechanism that I want to talk about are padrinos. So this is not so proven. I would say it's probably generalizable, but <laughs> basically it's the, they're patrons. So for any small or large event, including baptisms, weddings, um, graduations, in this, in this case, a new roof, um, <laughs> they will ask, people ask um, 
friends or family, or like one person, two people, a man and a woman, to be padrinos. So like a godmother, a godfather. In this case, I got to be the godmother of this particular roof. Um, <laughs> and basically, it's, it's, it's a way to save money because one of the main responsibilities of being a padrino is to throw the party and to pay for a lot of the expenses. So if it's a baptism, I also ended up with three godchildren <laughs> coming back from Peru. Um, you know, you, you pay for the dress for the, the baptism and the, a lot of the food and the cake and things like that. And it's a prestige thing. So in one of the communities that I, not in, not in Lima, but I was the godmother of a family in um, Chiclao, and it was a kind of a rural part of Chiclao, so it wasn't, it was a smaller place. And there it's a really big status thing. The fact that they had somebody that was American as a godmother, and so the other person was like the, the mayor of the city, like it, that's, that's how they get social status and social capital in, in, those, in the smaller communities. Not so much in Lima, I would say. Like it wasn't really a big deal that they had an American being the godmother of a roof in this particular case. Um, but yeah, it's a way to move up the social ladder. Um, okay, then, so here I got to be the, uh, <laughs> the madrina of a graduation of a, pre of a preschool as well, so. <laughs> um, okay, juntas. This is, I don't, I, this is probably not unique to Lima or Peru, but uh, basically this is something really cool that I found out is that Organically, again, without any outside intervention, groups of probably about four women would get together and start juntas, which basically every day or every week, each of the women would put in a number of like five soles or one sole um, every day, and it would, it's like it's a basically an informal bank. Um, and at the end of the year, one of the women would get all of the money, and then they would do this for four years, or however many people were in were in the group. So this was another one way to save up for, say, a roof or some of the bigger, larger expenses that aren't so um, pressing for which you might need a poyada, for example. Um, and this, I mean, I saw this all the time. There were so many different groups going on, and it, it, it works better if it's a smaller group, clearly. Um, so I don't think. Um, yeah, okay. Then, the last thing that I wanted to talk about, um, so this might seem kind of strange, but those of you from Peru or maybe Latin America may know this already, that, that marriage is very uncommon. Um, so it's a Catholic country, mostly Catholic, um, although there's a very large proportion of people that are Protestant, but most people don't have the luxury to be able to get married in a church or even civil unions, and so they will informally live together, and Peru actually has a law uh, where if you live together for two years, then you have all of the privileges of basically being married. So why do, why do people not get married? Because it's really expensive, and you have to throw a party. It's kind of a social expectation if you're going to get married that you have to throw a party. Um, and even, so some of the municipal governments will have like mass weddings, but even that is still, you still have to pay a price, and it's just not worth it when you could just live together. Um, and so in the group of women that I worked with, the 30 women, there were only two women that were actually married. Um, it, even though it's common law, and even though it's um, a law in Peru, essentially, there's still a lot of problems 
without having a, it formally recognized that your marriage, like certification problems and just a lot of bureaucratic problems. So, but it is a coping mechanism, obviously, because you're you don't have to pay the cost of some social institution by getting married. You just live with. And the so I've gotten a lot when I've done this presentation, I get questions about. So wait, does what happens when you know is there a high rate of men leaving um, the women after getting them pregnant or whatever. And actually, I didn't find that at all. In fact, to contrary to maybe some popular beliefs, um, the families were extremely well-knit and extremely close. I mean, there are lots of drinking problems and a lot of other problems, but in general, um, there, there were no single mothers that I found in the community. So, um, Okay, I'm going to skip over this part really quickly. Okay. Um, all right, so the community that I worked in, Virgen de la Candelaria, was located in Via Maria. The average household income is between $100 and $250 a month. Um, most women hadn't completed secondary school, and most women were from migrants from the rural parts of Peru. So I was actually um, just talking to someone, and, and this is an important point because we're now in the second generation. So a lot of them, a lot of the women are second generation migrants and so they've lost a lot of their ties to the rural parts and a lot of the culture there but they don't still quite fit into Lima so it's like these communities provide kind of a middle ground for people that I may not know what <laughs> may have some ambiguity about the ide their identities um, so I worked with this, the cooperative and I, so I didn't talk about the community, community organizing model that I used but um, I want to be conscious about time too so I just, okay, so I'm just going to show the video and then we can just call it a day and you ask me questions if you'd like. I don't know how to escape this. Okay. All right. Um, so a way to do a volume on this. This, oh, this right here? Okay. I don't think it's. Yeah. Well, we can just read the subtitles <laughs> if you'd like. Can you hear a little bit? Yes. Okay. I don't know.
Um, so just quickly to highlight kind of the accomplishments that we had in the year that I was there, we, there was really no organization, I mean th informally there was, but um, through VASA, some programs, but um, we were able to secure a, um, own their own plot of land, um, so they own their own land and we were able to construct a community center which is in the handout in the picture. Um, we implemented a daycare so that the women are able to work. Um, and right now, the, the part that we are working on is, is training, job training in terms of being able to sell their, um, their goods and also just like the training in, in business, so I mean, in capacity building in terms of being able to have, um, being able to sell their, their, their things and having it be a sustainable model. So that's all. And if you ask me questions later.